Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For our audience worldwide, live on Bloomberg TV and radio, I'm very pleased to say that joining us now is the National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow from the White House. Hello to you, Larry. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. First and foremost, our thoughts with the president and the first lady. If we can start there and if you can update us on the health of the president, when you last spoke to him, what he sounded like, what you're hearing now. Uh, I spoke to him last evening. Um, Sounded fine. Um, I didn't get to see him, but I did speak to him. I have not spoken to him this morning. Uh, Chief Meadows has spoken to him several times. We're all getting our assignments. Apparently, it's a, a light version uh, of the virus. Let us pray that that is the case. Pray for both the president and the first lady uh, and my pal Hope Hicks uh, and Ron and McDaniel for that matter. So we're okay. I was tested this morning. Thankfully, it was another negative test. I think I'm 86 or 87 straight days, something like that. And the uh, business is functioning here uh, in the government. And we hope the president gets well very soon. We share those hopes, Larry. If you can just describe for us the symptoms with a little bit of detail so we can get a little bit more clarity. You called it a light version of the virus. We've heard it described as mild symptoms. What are the symptoms, Larry? I'm just not in position to tell you, Jonathan. As I said, I have not seen him. Uh, I've not talked to Dr. Connolly, so I'm I'm not the guy on, on, on that particular beat. I understand that. I think some way you can help us, though, is the process. What we're experiencing right now in the last 24 hours is probably the most high-profile track and trace process that's played out since the coronavirus started. When were you contacted, Larry? Uh, Contacted about the president. Contacted about about Hope Hicks testing positive and that you would have to go Uh, and get a test yourself. Well, I get one every day, as a matter of course. People that come in and out of the Oval and are with the president... Uh, There's a bunch of us that get tested every day. Um, I heard about Hope last evening, and um, I heard about the president uh, as soon as I woke up this morning. What we've learned from the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, is that the White House knew that Hope Hicks had tested positive ahead of leaving for the New Jersey fundraiser. And, Larry, I think a lot of people are asking questions as to why the president still went to Bedminster, New Jersey, when the White House was aware that Hope Hicks had tested positive. Can you give us any, any clarity on that? Shine a light on why, Larry? I, I'm not sure, John, that I can. I mean, I, I wasn't on Marine One. I didn't go on that particular trip. Um, I, I think as soon as they realized what happened, uh, they took um, certainly distancing measures. But look, I wasn't there. I'm not the doctor. Uh, I'm here to talk about the better than expected jobs report and why the economy is doing well. I, I, I can't help you on the medical stuff. If I could, I would. But I just I wasn't a participant. Totally understand. And I wasn't there. Larry, don't expect you to talk about the medical stuff with us today. But you have in the past voluntarily suggested to Americans how they should act and engage with each other. And I just wonder for everyday Americans right now, what kind of message this sends? And you are representing the administration at the moment, Larry. What do you think? This sends as well, a message to the public in America right yeah. now. Look, we, we continue uh, to um, emphasize the protocols. That is to say, masking and distancing and testing where applicable and good daily hygiene, uh, washing your hands and your face and so forth. We, we have said this uh, throughout the pandemic and we will say it again. 
Um, and I think we all are observing the protocols uh, as best we can, uh, especially the distancing. But also, look, when I go out of the complex, I'm wearing a mask. I couldn't get into a store if I didn't have a mask on. And uh, we're all sure. very conscious of this. This is big. Listen, this is terribly important stuff. I, I understand that. And lives are at stake and it's difficult. But again, our protocols have not changed. Masking, distancing, testing and um, and good hygiene. That's the best you can do. We have improved on the therapies. The doctors know a lot more than they did. Uh, Dr. Sean Connolly is the best in the business. The White House Medical Unit is the best in the business. The president's going to get absolutely uh, first rate plus uh, treatment. And as I said, we all pray for him and the first lady. Why weren't those protocols followed yesterday? I don't know that they weren't. Well, it's quite clear from the timeline that we've already discussed and the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, basically confirmed they were. If you'd learned before the trip that an aide to the president, Hope Hicks, had tested positive before leaving and you still left and then went to a fundraiser, they're the protocols. They haven't been followed, Larry. Jonathan, I just can't speak to it. As I said, I wasn't there. Uh, I have spoken to the chief this morning on some other matters. We didn't go through that uh, timeline. I, I'm sorry. I just, I just can't speak to it. Now, I understand it puts you in an awkward situation, but I think at the moment for the American people, they've had to follow the guidelines, and it's pretty clear in the last 24 hours from what we've heard, Larry, that it doesn't sound like the president did. So for Americans at work today, engaging with the workforce that may have been exposed to coronavirus and might have to return work without, from work without pay and go and self-isolate, how do you convince them that that's the right thing they should do? And that's an economic question. Yes, it is. Now, look, I, again, I, we continue to emphasize the protocols, as you and I have talked about this. Um, you know, you see virus hotspots, for example, and we have mitigation uh, to control it. Fortunately, the trends look pretty good right now. Hospitalization, fatalities uh, way down. Uh, cases uh, popped up a little bit earlier in September. Um, they're coming back down. But all through this, to the best of my ability and the best of everybody's ability, we have emphasized these protocols. We must do this. Now, it can be done. It does seem to work. Um, and we're open business. I guess we've got about 80 percent of our business open. And, you know, we are assisting medically and financially to help people deal with uh, COVID issues, uh, you know, renovations if yeah. necessary. We're testing. I think we're at a million tests per day now with a capacity to do even better. But again, proper masking, proper distancing, proper testing and proper hygiene. That has been a staple of our response uh, from day one. But Larry, I'll ask the question again, if you don't mind. If the president hasn't followed your advice, why should an American who doesn't get paid to go home, go home and self-isolate if they've been exposed to coronavirus? Why should they well, look, do that if the president I, didn't? My impression here is that when the president tested positively, that's exactly what he did. He went home. He's in effect quarantined, quarantined himself. We're working with the doctors. That's what he did. I wasn't there uh, at the events yesterday, so that. I can't speak to that. My impression but the president the is following. Though, Larry, he's following these advice. The guidelines. He's following sure. the guidelines. The president has been a well, stickler. Let's talk about them. On distancing. Let's talk about them from an, from an economic perspective, if we can, Larry. I'm at work. I know that if I've been in contact with someone who's tested positive for COVID-19, 
I should go home immediately, get tested, wait 14 days. I'm trying to understand why the president didn't do those things. If they're the minimum requirements in the workforce in America right now, why wouldn't the president of the United States holding the highest office in America follow the same guidelines? Jonathan, the best I can do is to say that as soon as you know, he was tested as a precautionary measure when the news came out about Ms. Hicks and he did test positive and he immediately did and followed the very protocols that you are describing. He did it. That's the best I can tell you. Uh, we can go through this a few more times, but that is my view. That is the information I have. He is following the protocols and he acted very quickly. He's in the residence as he must be. We will see how long it's necessary for him uh, to quarantine. That's up to the doctors and the president and the first lady and so forth. I can't get involved in that. And again, I, I wasn't on a helicopter. I wasn't on a trip yesterday. But as soon as he found out, he was tested. And as soon as he tested positive, he went in quarantine. Larry, I'll only ask one more time. And I know it's unfortunate, and I'm sorry to keep doing this. I really am. We've built up a relationship over the years, and I'm sorry to make this awkward. But that's not what happened. According to the timeline, and according to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, you learn about the positive for Hope Hicks, still went on the trip, and then when you returned, the president was tested and tested positive, and only then did he announce that he would be quarantining. And also, it wasn't disclosed to the general public that Hope Hicks had tested positive, until we broke the story here at Bloomberg and the president went on the television show with Sean Hannity on Fox News. That's the timeline. And Larry, I know it's sensitive and I know this puts you in a really tough position. But for all of us, for everyone operating in this economy right now, for people trying to work and trying to get paid, if they're exposed to coronavirus, they have to go home. They don't wait around and carry on with their normal life for several hours' time and then go and do a fundraiser and then get a test. And, Larry, that's the distinction here. That's the difference. And I think it is an economic question. It's not just a political one, which is why I need you to help me answer it. For everyday Americans who can't afford to go home after being exposed to the virus, what kind of a message does this send to them? Look, so we all stay safe as best we can. I will repeat, we must follow the key protocols, masking and distancing and testing and good hygiene. Uh, I can't give you the chronology because it wasn't there. And I will leave that to um, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who's an exceedingly capable man. Uh, and he has a lot more information about it uh, in real time than I do. I I'm not the guy. But I say, I, as we I'm always have, that, that all... Yeah. all all folks who might be listening to this or paying attention to it, we want everybody to be well. We want everyone to protect themselves. We want everyone to follow the guidelines because these protocols have been proven to work. All right. And that's a good thing. And, and right now, our businesses are getting back to reopening. So it does help the economy. And right now, uh, we are uh, strongly recommending with many, many experts in health sciences, that the schools should reopen. And the odds suggest that those sure. kids are the, least, uh, are the least vulnerable. Now, again, I'm not the scientist, but I think schools reopening is a parental question. It's a child education and psychology question. It is an economic question. I agree with you. To help the parents, let's do it. 
uh, regarding the reopening of businesses. We have found ways and means to reopen businesses and even restaurants on a safe basis. And I would also say um, the economy is reflecting that improvement. So uh, I would uh, I still feel that we're in a recovery sh a period. It's a V-shaped recovery. Today's numbers, when they're properly adjusted, were in line with consensus, and the unemployment rate has fallen to 7.9%. We have blowout car sales numbers uh, last night or this morning that folks aren't talking about. In other words, Jonathan, I'm saying we are moving in the right direction and we are succeeding in dealing with the pandemic and with the, econo uh, with the economy's recovery. And that's an awfully good yeah. thing. And the president, when he gets back on his feet, which I hope and pray will be very soon, will continue to make his case that lower taxes and lower regulations and better trade deals and energy independent yeah. will get us back to the kind of prosperity where family incomes and real wages have gone up for the first time in 20 years. It worked. And so this pandemic protocols is part of our message. Only just a little bit of a tangent there, Larry, but I'll forgive you for it. And I share those hopes and prayers, and I hope the President and the First Lady get better. You mentioned the vulnerable. I've been talking about the vulnerable, the people that can't afford to go home and self-isolate. Let's talk about them and the help the administration is trying to offer them. In the last week or so, there have been some negotiations between Republicans and Democrats. And on Wall Street, it's been difficult to understand whether it's happy talk, posturing, or real negotiations. Do you think they are real negotiations? Do you think we can actually strike a deal in the coming week? Well, I can't forecast that, Jonathan. It's, that's a tough question. It's the right question, but I can't forecast it. I can tell you, as I said earlier, business is going on in the White House. Secretary Mnuchin is expecting to have discussions with Speaker Pelosi today. Uh, I spoke to Stephen very early this morning about a number of matters. Um, we're still apart uh, on our asks uh, there in our judgment asking for a lot of extraneous things that have nothing to do with COVID and the economy. Uh, the split has narrowed somewhat, but it's still wide enough. And I, I would just make this point there. As I've said before, I don't believe our recovery is dependent on assistance package. But, but there are certain areas which would be enormously helpful. To wit, the airlines need legislation for additional assistance. They're in big trouble and they're on the verge of major layoffs and we would like to prevent that, all right, to help the workforce. Secondly, we should be extending the uh, payroll protection plan for small businesses. Uh, there's actually 130 some odd billion of money that was unused. We need legislation to put that back to work. I get a million calls on this from CEOs of large and small companies. Uh, we should help the schools. We've always had a hundred billion, hundred and five billion dollar ask uh, to help the schools yeah. reopen with respect to whatever, you know, renovations and refurnishings and testing and equipment to do. Uh, we should have a backup plan on legislation for unemployment assistance. All right. We've gone into our executive order. We put out the extra three hundred dollars. That's not going to last forever. I don't understand why. Our friends on the other side of the aisle cannot agree to these five or six basic issues that virtually everybody agrees with. Why? You know, we're zero is not going to help. All right. A trillion or a trillion five would be very helpful. And if we need more later, we can come back later. But you've got to have some sense of compromise here to help Americans 
who genuinely need help. This is not extraneous spending. This is emergency relief spending. We have been pushing this from day one in these recent talks. Let's just get it done. Yeah. And other stuff that's out there, more political or ideological, fine. I respect that. But let's deal with that in separate pieces of legislation at a different time. Larry, when are the next talks? Uh, as I said, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin told me early this morning uh, he expects yeah. to have uh, significant conversations today. Today. And the distance between the two sides, you talked a lot about substance. Can we just put numbers on that just briefly if we can? The House Democrats passed the bill 2.2 trillion. You threw some numbers out there. I'm just wondering what you've come up to. Secretary Mnuchin said you've come up. What have you come up to now? Just un understand uh, the distance between the two sides at the moment, Larry. Right. Fair enough. The secretary told me this morning, um, and I'll try to quote him, his position, his, that is the president's and our administration's position, is in the neighborhood of $1.5 trillion. Uh, I, I cannot speak for Senator okay. McConnell, the House leader. They may have a different point of view, but I will quote Secretary Mnuchin. He has said this publicly, in the neighborhood of $1.5 trillion. So the spread, the bid and the offer has narrowed, but it's still pretty far apart. And again, I just come back to this simple formula. I'm not interested so much in the aggregates. I'm interested in specific targeted programs that could help kids in school, help small businesses, help the airlines, and help the unemployed. We had a nice drop in uh, unemployment in the data coming out uh, this morning, but there's still too many people out there, way too much hardship, and we want to help them as they transition. So why not just pass these few targeted essentials to keep America going and get through this uh, difficult pandemic period? Why not? Larry, do you have a deadline for these negotiations in mind? Is there a cutoff period for you ahead of the election or can this just keep on going? No, no, I, I don't have a deadline in mind. Uh, I, again, I'm not speaking for the Senate Republican uh, conference, yeah. uh, but I don't think Mr. Mnuchin, I don't think Mr. Meadows, and I don't think President Trump has a deadline in mind. Look, President Trump himself has said numerous times that he is willing to go further than some people uh, in the Senate. So I think that's always been a slightly encouraging position. I mean, we're willing to do business here. We are willing to do business. Larry, can I say thank you? And I apologize for my persistence, but I think these are really important issues no and the timeline no will probably apologies. reveal itself with a little bit more clarity Jonathan, in the coming days. As a former broadcast anchor, uh, I understand the business and uh, professional to professional. Uh, I salute you. Larry Kudlow, thank you very much. Send our best to the White House, won't you, to the president and the first lady. We all hope they have a speedy recovery. It would be good, John, now to fold in somebody prodigious in the mathematics and dynamics of this odd bond market with the American economy and with the shocks in Washington. We can bring in Jeff Rosenberg, BlackRock Portfolio Manager of the Systematic Multi-Strategy Fund. Jeff, great to have you with us, sir. Your response on the jobs market, but more importantly, perhaps, a conversation that I know is dominating things over at BlackRock at the moment and the fixed income team. What treasuries aren't doing? They're not doing a lot, Jeff. Why? 
Yeah, you know, they're not doing a lot uh, on this morning on, on payrolls. Uh, you know, just a comment on the payrolls. You know, the headline is a little bit uh, below uh, forecast, but it's a very different labor market payroll report. You know, the, the span of uncertainty here is about 2 million jobs. Uh, government was a little bit weaker. If you look at private uh, payrolls, that was pretty much on the screws. But to your second question, John, which is really the much more kind of salient conversation, is that, you know, the rate market volatility is just incredibly dampened and, and, and for good reason. And that is, you know, the Fed has ushered in a tremendous amount of firepower to, to basically uh, support financial market stability in the aftermath of uh, the, the coronavirus shock in, in March and April, and now pivoting to a very clear message of a long run, right, all the way out through the forecast period of zero interest rates and moving QE into the accommodation mode. So you're seeing very, very small yeah. moves now in the in the rate market. A very interesting. Futures at negative 50. What is really good is to let Michael McKee have 12 seconds to actually read the pages of documents. This is a more informed Michael McKee. Well, I just want to pick up on something that Jeff just said about government losses. The uh, total government job losses, 216,000. And if you look at the uh, underlying numbers, local government education down by 231,000. This was expected by a lot of analysts, and this is what's really depressed the numbers, and it's probably related to seasonal factors. In September, teachers and all the workers at the schools, the custodians, the cooks, the bus drivers all go back to work. But this time, because of virtual school, many of them did not. The seasonal factors expected a bump, didn't get it, and so pushed the number down below where it otherwise would be. So the number is low, the total number of jobs, 661,000, lower than anticipated, but it may not be real, as Jeff Rosenberg was just saying. Messy report, Mike. Always great to get the reality checks that you bring for us, Jeff Rosenberg. This is the last employment report until the November 3rd election. What is the narrative as you see it coming from this? Well, you know, there's another thing just to focus for a second on the on the payroll report. You know, leisure and hospitality is up uh, again, quite significant. And and it is a reminder. You know, uh, Mike just talked about the, the the schools and the teachers, and that's a that's a that's a negative drag in the report. The positive part is you are seeing the effects of reopening in this in this report. So you're seeing strong figures there. You know, that's that's some good news. And it's a reminder that, you know, we are moving through. There is a reopening. It's in fits and starts. And, and now I think when you when you consider today's headlines, it's really about a reminder. And we're seeing these reminders in many areas, uh, aspects. Right. So here in New York City, schools are reopening. Some schools that reopened earlier I've already had to close down and that we are dealing with the uncertainties of what, you know, the potential of a, a second wave might look like. And I think that's really the kind of big picture story around, you know, today's headlines. And it's really going to be how aggressive and necessary will any policy response in terms of shutdowns and constraints on the economy be. And that's really weighing on here financial markets. It's pushing up expectations uh, for perhaps a, a fiscal policy response that we know is is kind of stuck in, in Congress. Perhaps that increases in its likelihood. And these are really going to be the themes that dominate 
the economic outlook and therefore also the, the market outlook. All right. So you were talking, Jeff, about the policy response, potential shutdowns. But as we've seen, it's not necessarily an official shutdown that causes the economic ramifications. It's people being nervous that they're going to get the virus, right? It's human behavior. Yeah. It's the psychology of it. And I got to say, this morning, coming in, seeing the headlines, seeing the most high-profile track and trace you've ever seen going on in the White House and throughout mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., you have to wonder what that does to psychology, how much that puts a dampener on the U.S. economic recovery. Do you expect, given the diminished expectations for a fiscal response, do you expect the U.S. economy to continue to at least grow, given all the headwinds that we currently see? Well, I, I do. It's about the second derivative of that growth in terms of how much negative impact and drag do you get. And you raise a really good point that you don't have to have you know, government mandated shutdowns to see the effect. Now, what's important about that effect is that it, it hurts very specific segments of the economy, right? So if it's people reacting to, to the fear, that hurts <clears throat> restaurants, it hurts retail, it hurts leisure and hospitality. You know, the things I just mentioned that in September, we're seeing some recovery. But if you don't have the full-born shutdown, you don't necessarily see that spill over into manufacturing and into other parts of the economy that, if allowed to, can continue to practice as they implemented safer measures, social distancing that allowed manufacturing in the era of pandemic to continue. Jeff Rosenberg with us from BlackRock as we consider this jobs report, the revisions, futures really pretty much unchanged off the shock in Washington. Our Michael McKee with further insight. Michael? the numbers here that uh, Lisa was talking about earlier and what you see is an, uh, an interesting number for construction workers, only 26,000. And we've seen such gains in housing, particularly in new home construction. Yeah, and it may be that yeah, we're yeah. Uh, finding a, a problem in finding workers to do the jobs, manufacturing jobs up 66,000. And you'd look at retail trade, interesting, 142,000 jobs. That's significantly lower than the 261,000 last month. But it is a lot of jobs when people... Uh, talk about the idea of, uh, of maybe um, that we right. lost a lot of stores, uh, you got to wonder right. if, uh, if they maybe are still trying. Michael McKee, thank you so much. Jeff Rosenberg, one more insight here before we get to this lead story across this nation. And that is, can you explain to me how banks make money in the Rosenberg nominal yield space? I really haven't understand how they're going to jump through that hoop. How are they going to do it? Well, you know, it's it's still all about credit transformation, right? So borrowing at, at lower rates than they're earning on their loans. And, and despite the yield curve being exceptionally flat, uh, banks' financing costs are still very, very low, uh, supported by government policy. And when you consider the, the charges in terms of credit and credit spread, that's that's really how banks are, are finding mm -hmm. uh, net income margin. And, and, and so they can find profitability there. Well. This has been wonderful. Jeff Rosenberg, what an odd jobs day. Thank you so much for helping us uh, uh, try to make some semblance of normality. And always thank you to our Michael McKee as well. Someone who has practiced that humility uh, in economics and taking those skills to the World Bank is David Malpass. And we're thrilled that the World Bank president joins us this morning. There is an annual meeting, and yes, it will be affected by the president's uh, illness. David Malpass, of course, working for President Trump before his present uh, duties. David Malpass, COVID is front and center for your World Bank, different than the IMF, different than the World Health Organization. I want to know what you've learned on the efficacy 
of masks. Hi, hi, Tom. Good morning. Well, I think the uh, masks are helping where the, uh, in in lots of parts of the world. One thing we we did starting in April uh, was to create programs where countries could choose the the different protective equipment that they wanted to buy with financing that we could provide. And so that's been a very successful program because it gives the choice to the countries. Uh, and there's there's a variety of activities uh, going on in order to counter the response. And what we've done, what I did this week was announce the expansion of that program. My board is looking at it now to cover vaccines. So a critical thing for countries right. is that they begin to, uh, to uh, uh, respond fully to the crisis and get people back into their livelihoods. That's that's critical because right. the poverty rates are going up so fast. David, you know, across this nation, there's cultural differences in the wearing of masks. I know, David, at Colorado College, there's 100% usage of masks at all time. John Farrow mentions the variability of mask usage in the United Kingdom. Right now, India is front and center. What has the World Bank learned about India's protective abilities? Well, the, the, the COVID is a, a giant catastrophe, especially for the poorest people. Uh, they, as as the, the, the economy shut down, people that were in the informal economy didn't really have the ability to buy uh, protective equipment, masks, uh, and they didn't, they didn't have an ability to have social distancing or space. So India's hit particularly hard. Uh, and, but but we, the, what I observe is waves of uh, waves of uh, infection uh, in the developing world. So it's a very challenging, uh, very challenging environment. One of the, th the problems is children are out of school uh, and we think there are a billion, one billion children out of school, which, and, and they're, they're, they have the problem that they move backward in learning when they aren't going forward, when they're not in school. So we have uh, sizable programs to try to help make schools safe uh, and, and begin uh, allowing uh, people back to school when the when when it's safe and when they're ready, wearing masks. David, you raise an incredible point. This idea of the, the the toll that this has taken on the least advantaged, both in the United States, but frankly around the world. We've had Ken Rogoff, we've had Mohammed Alarian come out and talk about how they are, this emerging world is facing a debt crisis, a social crisis. How much oxygen does the drama in the developed world, with the U.S. election, with the virus getting worse in certain locations, take out of the room from getting aid from some of these wealthier nations and getting it to those that need it? You, you know, the, I, I would say the wealthier nations have been generous, uh, and one of the challenges is using the aid uh, that is available most as productively as possible. Countries need efficient systems to do to do the distribution of the equipment, and also if vaccines become available, that's actually a complicated process uh, to actually uh, vaccinate uh, a lot of people. So we're we're beginning that preparation uh, phase or help, uh, working with countries so that they'll be ready if there's a, a vaccine. But you're exactly right. The inequality of this extends. There's many aspects. One is a lot of developing countries uh, relied heavily on remittances from workers that worked across the border somewhere else. And that flow has uh, slowed down. The biggest problem is their markets have uh, have severely declined. So uh, for Africa, they were used to shipping products to Europe. Uh, there's just not as much 
much demand. The good news, I, I would say, uh, is uh, uh, is that uh, economies in the advanced countries are are be are showing recovery. If you look at the quarter over quarter kind of data, uh, and so that's a start, and that will help the developing countries a lot. I yeah. would say. There's generosity in the world. The complication is COVID is a, a really bad, uh, really bad virus. And so that's just hammering poor people. David, how on board has China been with extending aid to the developing world, given that they've emerged as one of the largest lenders to the EM complex? It's several aspects of that. Right at the putting aside uh, where the, the the source origin of the virus uh, in in April and May, they extended the helping hand somewhat to the developing world. So that's important. They had uh, manufacturing equipment for some of the aid, so that's good. The U.S. did that. Uh, Europe did that, and so I, I welcome that. Um, you're right that China uh, is has been one of the biggest lenders to the developing world over the last maybe five years or 10 years. Uh, and so that's a real challenge because some of their, it, it comes from a variety of Chinese uh, uh, policy banks and commercial banks and government agencies. Some of them are still taking payments from the poorest countries. I, I in March, uh, 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 suggested a moratorium for bilateral official creditors so that they would would stop taking payments. Kristalina Georgieva, the head of the IMF and I uh, pushed that and the G20 endorsed it. And many of the creditors have stopped taking uh, payments from the poorest countries. But unfortunately, uh, commercial creditors are, are still taking those payments. That means banks, uh, hedge funds, asset managers, and some of the Chinese, a few of the Chinese yeah. agencies are not fully mm -hmm. participating. And th they're some of the largest Creditors, we're talking giant billions and billions in flows that are still coming out of the poorest countries. David, we've got to leave it there. We appreciate your time this morning, sir. Come back soon, David Malpass. There, the World <laughs> Bank president. Peter Hotes joins us from Baylor, his work at Yale University and particularly biochemistry at the Rockefeller uh, University in New York years ago. Peter Hotes, your thoughts on the first week of when anyone gets this terrible virus. Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, I do worry about the president and his family. Uh, he does have a lot of uh, risk factors uh, that we know about, both his age that everyone has mentioned, and of course, some of his underlying what we call comorbidities. I don't think we know anything about hypertension or diabetes, but uh, his, his weight is potentially a factor. We don't really know why. There's one theory out there that there's a lot of virus receptors in adipose tissue, and that would be an interesting uh, possibility. So he is at high risk, and, uh, and I'm extremely worried about how he'll do with this virus. And he's just somebody that uh, he's going to have to be monitored very closely. And I would have a pretty low threshold of mm -hmm. bringing him to Walter Reed if he starts having right. any decompensation. Well, you knew, Peter, that's right where I wanted to go. And I go back, Peter, to a wonderful conversation, actually a very sad conversation, with Adam Bernheim of Mount Sinai, one of their acclaimed radiologists. And I'm going to say early March, which, as you say, it is the tissue uh, that becomes so damaging in this virus, the president obviously having some of those symptoms. I should point out some people have said I'm in that class as well. What is the the path to get to a hospital? What will Dr. Connery look for at the White House before he makes a decision to hospitalize any patient? 
Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. One, uh, monitoring is oxygen, because we learned from that horrible epidemic in New York in March and April that sometimes you can have pretty low oxygen levels in your blood, even without a lot of respiratory distress. And this is very interesting. So one of the reasons why you have respiratory distress with typical pneumonias is because you're retaining carbon dioxide, not because your oxygen is low. With this virus, sometimes you can and not retain carbon dioxide, but you'll still have low oxygen. So you can have stunningly low oxygen levels, uh, even without having respiratory distress. And that may account for some of the sudden deaths we're seeing. So that's one thing to look for. Another is remember this virus is not just a pulmonary virus like we initially thought when it came out of Wuhan, that it attacks the vasculature. So you're getting blood clots forming. That means pulmonary emboli, uh, strokes. Uh, it means heart attacks. and. And this is why someone like the president would really, somebody you'd really want to monitor very closely his neurologic status. Uh, so, uh, as I say, I you know I think someone like this you'd probably have a low threshold for for monitoring him in the hospital where you've got all the bells and whistles and you can really follow him yeah. uh, a little bit closer with monitoring. And I'm sure his doctors will be doing a very uh, good and judicious job of that. I will say, bringing you this headline from the New York Times saying that President Trump's virus case so far is mild. Uh, simply cold-like symptoms. I know, however, Dr. Hotez, that people will be watching him very closely. In the meantime, the track and trace game uh, taking hold in Washington, D.C., fear pervading everyone who has been in contact with President Trump, which raises a question about contagiousness, when people are most contagious, and the path of transmission. Can you give us any insight on the latest knowledge there? Yeah, I mean, this has been one of the real problems, right, for this virus, is that it replicates in large amounts in the upper airway, the mouth, the nose, uh, and even in people without symptoms. So there's some modeling studies coming out of Yale, out of Alison Galvani's group, showing that up to 50% of transmission is occurring among asymptomatic individuals. And now there was a huge uh, paper that just came out yesterday in Science Magazine from the group in India, Raman and Laxman Ryan, showing that uh, 20 to 40 year olds are contributing a huge amount of uh, virus in part because they are without symptoms. So that kind of fits in with the Hope uh, Hicks uh, narrative uh, a little bit. So this is something that, uh, and this is why it's been so problematic. It's really a nightmare virus in the sense that you've got two groups of people, those falling very ill and going into ICUs and having long haul injury and those who are walking around the virus shedding a lot of virus with no symptoms. And this is why it's been so vexing uh, and why we were in the middle of this awful, awful pandemic. Indeed, it is awful. And we are getting a very uh, fast moving swath of headlines this morning. President, about former Vice President Biden coming out saying that he sends his thoughts to President Trump as well as the First Lady to recover. And Steve Mnuchin also saying that he is un, uh, un, doesn't have to quarantine himself. There is a question as we move forward also about the death rate. As we understand more about the virus, as we understand more about how much of the population may be infected, do we have a revised mortality rate? It's it's still looking pretty high, uh, given the pres given the president's uh, condition and underlying comorbidities and age, but you know it's we are a little further along in this epidemic and than we were back in April and March, and that has some advantages as well. We do have a couple of new monoclonal antibody therapies that are still in the early <clears throat> stages, uh, but now they've gone through some early clinical testing uh, for safety, and that's a possibility to consider the Regeneron monoclonal antibodies or the Abcellar-Alu right. monoclonal 
antibodies. Yeah. And then we, you know, we have uh, we have more arrows in our quiver than we've had before, of course, with dexamethasone and anticoagulant therapy. So there's there's a lot we can do proactively if we're concerned about the health of the president. Peter Hotez, one of the great conundrums here as we look at this news, and I know you'll have a busy day in searching for that yeast-based vaccine we talked about last time, is the great leap of the young people getting the virus and they're okay, and, you know, with great respect for Ms. Hicks or for any of the other people younger, and then somebody old, for an example, me, some, not you, Peter, someone old like me, someone old like there. the president, <laughs> someone old like the president gets it, and it's really serious. Address and speak now worldwide to younger people who think they're immune to this virus. Yeah, this is a really important point, uh, Tom. And, and remember, even though most younger people do well, we're still seeing lots of long-haul injuries and even deaths among young people, uh, especially with certain groups. So, for instance, the CDC came out with an important document this summer uh, I testified at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus this week because 35% of the deaths among Hispanic populations in the U.S. occur under the age of 65, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. So this virus is robbing us of a lot of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. So uh, that's and that narrative has not really been right. well explained to people. So that's another real important piece. Peter, one final question, and I want to go back to David Baltimore and your storied academics at Yale and at Rockefeller as well. Are we trying to reinvent the wheel? Is real all this is about is the medicine is frankly the same as it was in the 80s and the early 70s of Baltimore, and frankly, the medicine's remarkably same as it was in 1919. I think we've moved uh, beyond that. Not as not as fast as I'd like, because remember, the anti-infective market is, as they call it in the pharma industry, has not been strong because it's not a big moneymaker for the pharma company. So it's not been prioritized uh, like it has for, you know, diseases where illnesses where you have to take medicine every day. Uh, so the anti-infective is a short-term treatment, and therefore it's not as lucrative for the big pharma companies. But we do have some really exciting monoclonal antibody therapies. We have some antiviral drugs. We could do much better at exploration and R&D. And a number of us have been saying, okay, if we can't rely on the big pharma companies to start doing the R&D and produce these medicines, should we be looking elsewhere creating uh, nonprofit biotechs? Or we're going to the the key. The key piece to this, Tom, is we need almost mm -hmm. as much innovation in the business model as we do in the science. And when young people uh, talk to me, they say they want to go into infectious disease and global health. What should I do, Dr. Hotez? They're often very disappointed when I tell them uh, get a good MBA or get a, a law degree because we need as much innovation in the uh, right. creating a sustainable business model for these things as anything else. Peter Hotez, thank you so much on this historic day for joining us. He is with Baylor College of Medicine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.